Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to mention to you that you need to check out all the work we're doing on social media. So don't worry about Instagram, don't worry about LinkedIn, don't worry about Pinterest and those types of things. Where you're going to find me is on Twitter. Every single day I'm on Twitter. We're sharing a lot of the thoughts, a lot of the tips, a lot of the breaking news is coming out on Twitter. And then add to that our expat money forum. We are doing so much amazing things in the forums. There's special content that's not found anywhere else. There's a lot of networking. There's just so much happening on this forum that I really hope you get a chance to participate. And you can access that at expatmoneyforum.com. So find me on Twitter at Thora Mikkel or join the forum at Expat Money Forum. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is an award-winning travel writer and essayist. His stories have taken him from the lost earthworks of West Africa to the world's largest film industry of Nollywood. Over the course of his career, he has written about everything from Klingon karaoke to magical genital theft and having his appendix removed in East Africa. Please welcome to the show, Frank Burras. Frank, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Frank, why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of talk us through your journey and how you got to where you are now? Well, I grew up in Minnesota in a little town on the Mississippi River. And when I was in high school, we had an exchange student come to live with us for a year, just in kind of a private exchange from Bologna, Italy. And that's how I sort of got my start traveling and, and living abroad. After I finished high school, I went to live with him and his family for a year in in Bologna. And that was my first kind of stint abroad. And it it was a pretty deep immersion because I was just going to a local school and living with their family. They were actually a a German family living in Italy. So it was kind of trilingual in a way. But the school was fully Italian and it was a really big culture shock for me and a kind of transformative year. And so that kind of set the tone as far as wanting to, when I got back to the States, I went to college and uh, wanted to go abroad again. And so after college, I I found a kind of position teaching English in Tanzania and went there and lived there for a year again, teaching English. And then, you know, I really love that. I love Tanzania. It's a great place. And I learned Swahili and and had a really nice, you know, it's, it's hard place to live in a lot of ways, but a good place 
too. And then a few years later, my wife and I did another, we went to Thailand for a year and tried to teach English at a school in the south of Thailand, which is a a tough place because it's kind of this area that doesn't really want to be part of Thailand. And there was this low level sort of guerrilla war going on. It was just starting at that point. And so we had to leave and go back to Bangkok and live there for the rest of the year. And then since then, I've been based mostly in the U.S., but I've traveled, you know, as much as possible. So what was it like to try to learn Swahili? Well, Swahili is an interesting language. The structure is different. It's not that hard to learn once you get the kind of grammar down. I mean, it is hard to, to speak it well, but it's not hard to speak it basically because it's a trading language. And once you get kind of basically how it functions, it can be pretty easy to pick up. It doesn't have any tones or anything. And so so that aspect of it is pretty good. And the program I was on put us in a language school for a month at the beginning in Morogoro, which is, which is a Lutheran it was like a Lutheran church teaching program, and they have a, their own school, which is really excellent in uh, Morogoro. And, and so I had, I actually only had two weeks of that because I, I got appendicitis two weeks after we got there, and I had to go to the hospital in Dar es Salaam and spent the other two weeks there. That doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> yeah, it was quite an experience. So I missed a little bit of the language training, but I had enough of that baseline to to kind of get started. And also having learned Italian pretty well, I sort of knew the kind of things you need to know to to function in a language. And so I was able to kind of focus on those and, and end up doing pretty well. So it's not it's not super hard. And the other language that my wife and I tried to learn, Thai, is harder, I think, in some ways. I mean, every language is hard just I think in a different, it has a finite amount of difficulty, but just in a different direction. And like Thai was hard because of the tones are so difficult to hear and to to repeat if you're not used to them, but it actually doesn't have much like verb conjugation. So that aspect is easy. So of the three kind of languages that I've learned, you know, they're all difficult in, in kind of very different ways. It's nice to learn those different kind of language families and see how they work. I imagine being in East Africa and speaking Swahili to one of the locals, the look on their face must be just absolutely priceless when they hear the words in their own dialect coming out from you. Well, that's that's part of the fun of it, especially if you can if you can speak it well, you you earn a lot of respect like instantly and people are really excited to hear you speak in their language. I just had this experience yesterday in Minneapolis. I was watching the World Cup and I heard two guys sitting behind me speaking Swahili and they were from Kenya and I turned around and started talking to them and they were just super excited to hear somebody speaking Swahili. So yeah, it is it's fun. I love it. I love and I love languages. I'm always interested in linguistic stuff. Yeah, me too. When I, I study Chinese and when I hear someone speaking Chinese and I can have a very basic conversation. I'm not fluent by any means, but when I can speak to them, their eyes just go wide and their mouth just like opens up and they're like, what the hell is this white guy? Like, how is he speaking Chinese? And I've been told my accent is actually quite good. So they're, they're just absolutely floored. It's hilarious. Yeah, that's always, that's fun. That's like the best kind of compliment. I am told that I have a, a Bolognese accent when I speak Italian. So I, I take that as a big compliment. That's awesome. So you've spent a lot of time in Africa, actually. When I was looking through your bio, you've done some really interesting things there. Yeah, yeah. I lived there for the year, and then I went back for a few months the next year to watch my see my students graduate and kind of spend a little more time there. And then I've been back quite a few times for stories and uh, 
and kind of different trips. I did, I did one, I did a couple of trips to Nigeria, which, you know, I really love. It's kind of not for everybody. It's especially Lagos is a little bit of a wild ride, but it's, it's such a place that's full of energy. And it's for a writer, it's, it's great because they're just you walk down the street and like crazy things happen, you know. And so it's for, for I have a friend who lived there for a couple of years and he said it's just like gold for for writers and it's this Dickensian place. And so so I went there, first of all, to do the story about the magical genital theft, which I'm sorry, I, I can't I can't hear you say that without laughing a little bit, chuckling a little bit. I know. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And it, that's everybody's first reaction. And, and it was my first reaction, too. And but I was. I was really just interested in not so much, I mean, whether, you know, penises were really being stolen, but what, you know, what it would really feel like to live in a world where that was possible. Because it was like so clear from the things I read and I read some of the medical reports and some research on it that, you know, it's not, nobody, very few people doubt that this thing is possible. And so you, if you live there and you're part of that, you would probably believe that this is like a real danger. And so when I went there to write that story, that's, that was kind of my, my interest in just kind of trying to recreate that experience of living in because we all do that to some extent. And that, that was an, ended up being kind of the subject of my book, The Geography of Madness, you know, which, which starts out on that note, but then also shows how we do similar things in our culture. But back to your other question about traveling in Africa, I, you know, I went to Uganda to do a story up in, in north in Gulu when there was kind of still troubles going on there with the with the LRA. I went to Djibouti and there was a plan and I think I think there might be a revival of this plan. I'm not sure. I I get searches to my site now quite a bit about this bridge that they want to build from Djibouti to Yemen, which I guess it might not be possible with the war in Yemen right now, but there's there must be some talk of it. Because they wanted to build a bridge across the Bab el Mandeb Straits, which is where they think humans first left Africa, you know, modern humans first left Africa about 60 or 70,000 years ago and the final kind of expansion out into the world. And so, so I wanted to go there and kind of see this place as like the birthplace of humanity in, in some sense and also where they were going to build this bridge. And so I was not able to get up to that spot because there was like a small war between Djibouti and Yemen over like a pile of sand basically and so they weren't allowing people up there and I got kind of harassed by the police and stuff and it's not there's not very many tourists in that area so you know you're kind of in Djibouti is not a a lot of those places are not that easy to travel you know because like the one place I landed in Djibouti city and stayed there for a few days and then I took a like a you know the van slash bus around the bay to Obok, which is a little town right on the edge there, which is where one of the places where Arthur Rimbaud lived when he kind of left his French poetry scene behind and, and went to Africa to be an arms dealer. And they showed they showed me his house that was just kind of falling down and stuff. But there was a supposedly a hotel there that they told me at the where I could stay at the tourist office in Djibouti City, and then when when I got there, it was it was like totally abandoned. So so I had to find some other place to stay. 
Well, there's so many things there that you've just mentioned that I want you to unpack a little bit. So let's go back a little bit. So talk to me a little bit more about your time in Nigeria, because I'm actually going to Lagos in a couple of weeks, and I would love to hear kind of your a bit more about your experiences. And then I and then we can jump into some of these other things. But there's there's so much gold in what you've just said there, Frank. Yeah. So well, I I haven't been there for a while. It's interesting because the first time I went there was in 2005, and it was not that long after the Sonny Abacha regime, you know, which was a kind of pretty brutal dictatorship, which ended in the late 90s, I think. And there was still a lot of memory of that. And, you know, and Lagos was crazy. And there were these area boys kind of everywhere who would take over like a certain area and be sort of the local thugs. And you had to kind of give them some money to leave you alone. And it was kind of like that. It was you would go down to Lagos Island, which is the kind of the central island. And, you know, the streets were just like packed, like one car with like goods and from those shops and stuff and like one car could barely walk down the the alley and i you know i as a freelance writer self-employed i'm always traveling as cheaply as possible so and i also like to kind of walk around and and see as much as i can so i was basically walking around the city and uh, you know you end up getting kind of harassed and some of the area boys you know sort of pulled me aside and like wanted me to give him some money and like pulled a gun on me and stuff and and you know it was fine but so I was only like a block away from my hotel but by the time I went again in 2009 there was a new mayor I think Fashola is his name of Lagos I mean Lagos is a huge I mean it's 17 million people at least it's probably way more than that now that was that was a long time ago that it, it was estimated at 17 million, but they have, there's a lot of politics with the uh, census in Nigeria because of the division between the north and the south and the east and whoever has more people is a, is a big, is a big issue. So they, I don't know if they've actually done a census for a while, but it's probably in the 20 millions now. I don't know. It's huge. That's um, <laughs> Yeah. And so, but when I went there a second time in 2009 the streets had been cleaned up there were like garbage cans there was bus rapid transit you know it was like almost a different place and so you know that shows kind of the influence that one one person can make in in those those kind of situations it was amazing to see you know and i don't know what it's like now i think Pashola is still the mayor and uh, has kind of continued trying to clean up lagos and make it into like a, a global kind of mega city type thing i think they had planned on canals and stuff like that so i don't i don't really but i haven't been there for a a bit so it's a it's a little bit crazy of a crazy place or it was at least and you know it's like every big city like that it's bad traffic and hard to get around and things like that so i don't know you know i would have to start all over again if i was going to research going there now but i was also one thing that was really helpful was that i knew some nigerian writers and they sort of hooked me up with their friends who were journalists and they Journalists kind of know everything and know how to get around and stuff. And so that really helped with my research and, and logistics and all that, all those kind of things. So, And so what were you working on while you were in Nigeria? Because I saw that you were involved in the film industry in Nollywood. Yeah, so the first time I went pretty much to do the penis stealing story, but I also ended up doing this, the little story about the, the Uredo, the earthwork that you mentioned, uh, that's to the east of Lagos, about an hour, hour and a half. And I don't know what the status of it is now. It was kind of like in danger because it's a huge, huge thing that's just, you wouldn't even notice it if you drove 
over it and it's not really well protected or anything from development and those sorts of things so so i don't know what the status is now but it was i thought it was so cool i mean it's one of the biggest earthworks on the planet that we know of. so for my listeners who might not know explain to me what a earthwork is so earthwork is something that like like a big mound that people make or some sort of re some sort of construction made out of earth and this one was if i remember right a wall that went around a city that was supposed to kind of protect it from, not necessarily from people, they don't think, maybe partly from people, partly from like spiritually protecting, but it was, I am going to mess up the numbers, but it was like a hundred miles around or something like that. It was huge. And parts of it are still around and you could still go kind of walk along the, the trench. There was a, a remote kind of going around too. That was, I thought was super cool and a good story. And so, so I did that. I did a story about the literary scene, which was now is kind of taken off completely. I mean, there's Nigerian writers everywhere, you know, on every kind of bestseller list and everything, but it was just sort of starting that then. And a few Nigerian writers like Chimamanda Adichie were, were getting to be well-known and, you know, now it's no longer news, but it was, it was interesting to see the beginnings of that scene. And, and I, did a story about that. I also just sort of stumbled into the Nigerian film scene, which was crazily huge. I mean, it's the third largest film industry in the world. And so I was able to just interview a couple of people about that. And I did a story, ended up doing a story about that. So there was all these, it was just like rich with, you know, when I got there and, it, and in, including the, 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 the cultural syndromes and, and that sort of thing, which I also ended up getting a lot of good material for that story. And then the second time I went back, I was specifically doing a bigger story on the film industry. And I kind of spent some time with a crew that was making a movie. And, and that was really fun. And we spent a little time in Lagos, but more up in a city to the north called Oshogbo, which if you if you get out of Lagos at all, you should definitely go to. There's a woman who was, I think, not Nigerian, but she created this, this sculpture, this like spiritual sculpture garden that's in Oshogbo that you should you should go see if you can I can't remember the name of it but Ooh, I'll have to google uh, search that that sounds interesting yeah 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 no it's worth worth checking out and then the other story I was doing was they were planning to build a highway across West Africa we're building it you know in, in bits and pieces as part of this kind of transportation network that was sort of evolving and so I wanted to kind of just see on the ground what that was like and so I ended up taking the bus from Lagos up north through northern Nigeria. There wasn't really much Boko Haram stuff going on at that point. And then uh, into Niger and then going from there, going west across Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, and ending in Senegal. Those are some of my dream countries right there. Visiting Mali has been on my list for, God, 20 years, I reckon. That's amazing. Yeah, no, Mali is amazing. It's really cool. You know, and it's it's a, the, the Bamako is a really is a really cool city, and yeah, I had a great time. I wasn't like able to spend a huge amount of time in each one because it was like a two week uh, trip just to get over to Senegal where I had to catch my plane. Um, you know, and you never know how exactly how long it's going to take you because the buses break down, and like we had to sit at the border of Senegal for a day because they wouldn't let us through because the borders are closed when there's an election. So we just had to like sleep on these mats at the border and wait, wait till they opened it up the next morning. But I'm sure that added rich content for your writing as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't, you don't want everything to go well. I mean, you don't want it to go completely south, but you def definitely like, it's better 
easier to write about things when they go when they go somewhat poorly. So yeah, it was fun. It was a fun trip, and you know, I still have a lot of great memories of it. That's awesome. I love the topic of visiting Africa. It's one of my favorite places in the world, and I try to go back at least once a year, every single year. And I've been to Uganda as well, and South Africa, and Botswana, and Zimbabwe, and lots of fun, fun places, and always had an amazing experience. But yeah, Nigeria, I'm really looking forward to this month. And then maybe next year, maybe we'll see about Mali or Senegal or Gambia or something like that, a little bit more uh, west. Yeah, no, Mali is very cool. I mean, Burkina Faso is kind of under the radar but they have a big arts festival every year that's kind of a big deal i can't i think it's a music festival and and that's a cool place niger is also really interesting they have like a zoo in niger and you can they have in this cage the the last tree from the sahara that was that was growing in the middle of the sahara that a libyan truck driver accidentally backed over and and so they have it. They have it in this cage at the zoo in, in Niger. You can take a picture for a small fee. So he ran it over. Is it still living, or is it? It's done. It's just like a no. It's of a tree. dead. It's just like a <laughs> dead tree in a cage. But it's interesting. <laughs> it's so random, but so uh, yeah. Interesting is a good word for that. So talk to me a little bit about some of the other countries you lived overseas as an expat. Because I know you mentioned Thailand, and you have a couple other places. Yeah, I mean Italy was. Like I said, the first one, and I was really like just a kid. I was 18 years old and didn't really know much. And, you know, was thrown into into an Italian high school. And basically, I just sat there for the first four months not understanding anything and trying to, like, the, the father of the family I was working with was kind of an international businessman. And he, he, said, he spoke Italian, French, Arabic, German, English, and and he told me that the key to learning any language is just to memorize thirty words a day, and so so I I tried that. thirty words is a lot of words to memorize a everything. lot of words yeah you know but but it's a it, the principle is right I think and so I I tried to do that you know I don't I'm sure I didn't memorize thirty words a day but I tried to learn some new words every day and and my my desk mate was a guy named Filippo and we're still in touch. He, has come to visit me a couple of times and you know he taught me all the all the choice words so i was i was able to hold my own on the streets but but after about four months you know i don't know something started to click and everything just started to make sense and then once you hit that point it kind of accelerates and and i by the end i could speak you know pretty well and so so it's a kind of immersion you know that i don't even know if it's possible anymore because i was completely cut off except for the occasional phone call and and you know letters from America and from everything that I knew and so and I don't I I wonder sometimes about the what's lost with that because I just I just was reading a study it was saying that living abroad helps you develop a clearer sense of yourself and the effect is not the same for like traveling abroad for a short time it's 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 living in a culture and the more you kind of adapt to to a culture, the more you have to kind of ask this question, well, is this my own self, my own values, or is this values of my country or this new country or, you know, and so so you kind of pare down what it is that is kind of you exactly in that situation. And I feel like I really had that experience when I was when I was in Italy and, and had, you know, as, as bad as the, my sort of culture shock was while I was there in that first section in that first kind of 
few months. You know, when I came back, it was almost worse, you know, trying to readjust and then figure everything out. That that reverse culture shock type of behavior, yeah? Yeah, that is really hard. I can't even do it now. I've been gone for 20 years. Like, every time I go back to Canada, I feel like the biggest outsider and everything is, it's almost like Twilight Zone, you know, like kind of remember it, but not really. Mm -hmm. I prefer just to stay abroad now. I feel more at home being an expat. Yeah, you know, I, I, I feel a little bit the same, and it's, I don't know, I mean, I think in some ways it's like a permanent thing. I feel... I feel like an outsider here too, even though I've been back in the States for quite a long time. But, you know, you end up feeling like always, you always have that sort of anthropological perspective and you're always like noticing the changes in, in the culture, I think, in a different way, which, you know, as a writer is, is, is a great gift because that's kind of my, that's kind of my job is to notice those things and to, and to spell them out. But I do think, you you know, it changes you in some way so that you never feel part of things in quite the same way you know and and i'm okay with that so italy i mean italy is great um you know i again haven't been back there for a while i think it's changed quite a bit with the immigration and and those sorts of things you know but i it's a great it's a great place one of my neighbors is italian here in town and we occasionally can speak italian and stuff and so there's an italian cultural center here and which I occasionally go to their events, and that's fun. And then Thailand, that was a pretty different experience because when you're with someone else, you kind of bring your own culture, and it and and that kind of radical immersion is not as possible. So you don't have quite the same access to the local life, the local way of seeing things, the local way of, you know, thinking and those sorts of things because you you have your own kind of little bubble that you and your partner or your community are in and so you know how it's a it's a it's an interesting question to see see how to how to navigate that but but i think it's harder when you're when you're not just like especially when you're you're really young and impressionable and by yourself you know it's much easier than when you're a little more settled into yourself and and into your way of life. And so, so, you know, we didn't, we learned enough Thai to, to chat with people and like everybody was really very complimentary. And, and I felt like they didn't encounter many expats who, who spoke Thai that well or, or even at all. And so, so people were really excited when we could speak Thai and, and chit chat in the taxi and, and stuff like that. And, and Bangkok is, was an interesting place. You know, there's so many expats and it's just such a dynamic place. You know, there's just a million things going on and the food is so good. And I love the yeah. food there. <laughs> Thailand is one of my favorite places. We're actually shopping for another home in Chiang Mai right now. And I love Thailand so much. We were in the south when we when we went to go teach in a little town called Yala, which is very close to the border. And it was one of these towns where at, it's probably different now, but there was like nothing literally like nothing to do i mean for for an outsider who didn't have like family there and stuff you know there was like not even a kentucky fried chicken there's this one uh, there's one other american who lived in the town who taught english somewhere and he and his wife would go to patani the nearest town that had a kentucky fried chicken and they would bring back like three days worth of kentucky (laughs) fried chicken which i don't wouldn't are you are you a big KFC no, fan? No, I'm not actually, but I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, the, like the point of saying that was that 
when we finally did get up to Chiang Mai, there was like bookstore, English bookstores and markets and, you know, things to do, little movie kiosks. And I don't know, it was like, we thought we should have moved, to, we should have gone to Chiang Mai instead of a <laughs> lot. We would have lasted longer. <laughs> Too funny. Yeah. So anyway. So talk to me a little bit about your writing itself. Like, how is it that you're making money? You're doing freelancing. Talk us through this process a little bit. I'm a freelance writer. I've been a freelance writer for for 20 years. I've been full time freelance writer for since about 2005. And you know, it's kind of always it's always a challenge because with publishing and magazines and that market, things are always changing. You know, constantly there's magazines being bought, editors moving around, the industry just just changing like under your feet i've been you know since since 2001 when the internet bubble burst you know everything's been in constant flux and so it's a scramble and it's hard to say how to do it exactly i mean i've been doing it and one thing that helps you know i don't know how if your listeners know much about how freelance writing works basically you you come up with an idea, you think of a market for it, a publication, and then you write a proposal and send it to a particular editor at the at the publication. And so it's kind of a constant hustle. You know, you're always out of work, you're always looking for work, you're always doing work, which, you know, it, it takes a certain, I guess, kind of person to, to like that. You know, you have to have a tolerance of risk and a lot of ideas and a good sense for, for what is needed and you know i'm not by by any means the most successful freelancer but enough so that i can kind of make it work and so you you have to think but you do have to think of yourself as a as a business in some way and think of like okay i need to make this much money every month and i need to you know and kind of work back from that that helps you decide kind of which projects you're going to you're going to take on and which which projects you're not going to take on that will be kind of a waste of time or just not just too much time for the amount of, of money that you're getting. And are there certain publications that you really enjoy working for or some of them maybe that you, you, you don't really, or maybe you didn't have a great experience with? Yeah, always. I mean, there's always a lot of editing really just depends on chemistry between you and the editor. And if they kind of get you and you're on the same page and, and that helps a lot. I mean, that said, you have to be professional and sometimes deal with people you don't, you know, like I, I do a lot of work for the the Rotarian, which is the Rotary Clubs magazine, and I, I love that. It's they're great people. You know, they let me do interesting stuff. They let me do a lot of stuff about culture and cultural differences and 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 those sorts of things. And they're always they're Rotary Clubs all over the world, and so they're always doing interesting projects. I did one story about uh, an American woman who runs a university in North eastern nigeria which is right on the edge of boko haram territory and she's basically holding you know she and her school are basically kind of holding the line against against boko haram and like they had they had at one point they had an influx of four hundred thousand refugees that they had to feed and she Holy raised moly. money for all these for food for every day for these people and, you know and so I mean, it's crazy. It's a bigger, it was a bigger refugee crisis than Europe and you just don't hear anything about it. And so, so those are the kind of things that like Rotarians are, are doing. And I like writing about that. And, um, 
and that's so that's one of my favorite places to write for and my editors are are great there when you start writing for the bigger commercial magazines it gets a little more tricky because there's always like three levels of editors and the first one will tell you to do a bunch of stuff and then the second one will tell you to do a bunch of more stuff and the third one will tell you to add stuff in that you took out for the first one and so it's kind of a it's kind of a big process a little bit of bureaucracy thrown in there for fun yeah like kind of a lot actually (laughs) but you know you, you they pay and so it's it's worth pursuing if you can get if you can get a few of those bigger stories also Okay, we're just going to take a quick break. So if you guys haven't joined Expat Money Forum yet, then I don't know what I need to do to get you guys to go on this. The conversations in this forum are just unbelievable. The networking is fantastic. There's so much things being shared with the group that honestly, it's more than just me. It's more than just this podcast. It has grown to a life of its own. We have over 2,000 people in our private group discussing things like immigration, asset protection, travel, food, culture, history, everything about being an expat and going overseas. There's tons of work being done on Plan B residencies, on different passports. We're even talking about SIM cards, international SIM cards, and the best places to get your internet if you're a digital nomad and you're traveling around the world. There are so many things that are being shared by people who are actually in different countries, who are digital nomads, who are expats, who have gone offshore, and there's just so much there. So I'm really excited about it. I hope you can see that I'm really thrilled about this group because it's just more than I ever expected. And and a massive shout out to you if you are part of the group and you are contributing and helping other people who are looking to get where you are. You are an awesome person. I really, really appreciate it. So if you guys want to get involved, if you want to join the conversation, then go to expatmoneyforum.com or on Facebook directly, you can search for Expat Money Forum. You'll find us there. We should come up on the very first page. And yeah, join the group, join the conversation. Lots happening there. Okay, let's jump back into today's interview. So how does this work? They pay you in advance for going to these places and writing articles, or you go to the places on your own dime, and then when you come back, you start writing articles and start submitting them to publications? Usually the latter. It's easier to get assignments. I have friends who, who do a lot of the, of the kind where they get assignments and then they are kind of sent abroad. But you, you still have to kind of pay for it on your own credit card and then get reimbursed later. So that's, that's usually how it works. But if a magazine sends you someplace specifically, they will pay your costs if they can. Now, it's easier. Some of my first stories that I, that I got published were easier to sell because I was already living in the place where the story was happening and there weren't that many other writers. Like I was in New Zealand. A guy I knew was was like a, a, a snail collector. He collected like millions of, of snail shells from all around the world. And so I was able to sell a, a profile of him to, to Audubon magazine. Also in New Zealand, we were picking apples, and so I, I sold a little piece about about picking apples to Outpost magazine. I don't know if you know that. That's Canadian. Yeah, I know it actually. I do. Yeah, that was a long time ago. But you know, so, sometimes when you're when you're in the place, it can be easier to sell a story because the, the editors don't have to pay travel costs, and so it keeps their costs down, and you have more access. And it helps also if you speak the language and stuff. But, you know, I have a, a friend here in Minneapolis who she just did a cover story for Wired about the, the social credit 
thing uh, in China. She lived in China for a long time, and she has good language skills and good connections there. And so she's able to kind of sell stories based on that and get at least some of her costs reimbursed, if not all of them. So it's a, it's always a little bit of a moving target. Another friend of mine just did a story about like business stuff for Bloomberg in Ethiopia, and I think they would have paid for his travel as well. So they don't like to, but and it's harder to to do that if you're here. But if you're in another place and you can see a story, the difficulty is when you're living abroad, you're not quite as familiar with the markets, the magazines, and what currently everybody is thinking about and, and what the magazines actually look like on the page, So, which helps to figure out what kind of goes where and what kind of story to pitch where and things like that. So did you have an education or a background in writing before you moved into this genre of the travel writing? No, I, I didn't. And most writers I know are maybe like half or more. Most of the professional writers I know don't have any sort of quote-unquote writing degree. I studied political science and international relations in undergrad. And I also took a lot of writing classes, you know, just sort of the school that I went to didn't have a, a writing major anyway. So the English major was all like reading classics, which I I liked, but it, I was more interested in the international relations at that point. And so so I took a lot of writing classes, and I kind of knew that's what I wanted to do just because it's something that wouldn't get boring. And so I, I was able to design a couple like independent studies of my own, like on the writing market and how trying to figure out how how freelance writing works and how you get how you how you get a story into publication, how you make money, that sort of thing. And so I was one of the one of the requirements that I made for myself in the class was that you was that I get with something published and I I didn't. So I actually failed my own class. Well, you've more than made up for it now, I think, Frank. Well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so that was kind of my mindset at the time. And then uh, when I was living in Tanzania, I did a lot of like essay writing and just in notebooks and stuff. And then also there's an English language publication there, which called the Arusha Times. And one of my professors at college was from Tanzania and, and he knew the editor there. And so I was able to go down. I mean, it's a really small publication. And I, I went down there and I said, you know, I, I I was wondering if I could write for your paper. You know, I could write something and you then you could see if you like it. And and they said, oh, just just write it. We'll like it. So I was able to get some what, what are called clips, like things that you've written from, from them, which then helped me get it. When I came back to the U.S., I was able to get a job at, at the newspaper in my hometown using some of those clips. So, yeah, but freelancing is really nobody ever asks you what degree you have. It doesn't it doesn't make any difference. You know, all I find most jobs in the world these days, people are not asking for your university degrees or your transcripts or anything like this. You know, a lot of times it's, can you do the job? You know, can the person see working next to you and conversing with you and having a relationship with you? Are you going to be, you know, friendly and fun and show up and, and do a decent job? And those things are a lot more important than the letters before or after your name. Yeah, exactly. And, and the editor can look at your pitch and see, oh, this person can write, this person knows our publication, this person knows what kind of story we need, this person knows where this thing would go. And so, you know, that's basically all most of the information they need. And also they can see what if you've done other stuff before, you know, so they can tell from that whether they want to give you 
assignment or not. So do you have a certain style that you like to read in? Because when I'm looking at some of the titles and the, the names of your posts and things like this, these are pretty different. I don't know another way to say it. They're pretty unique or eclectic, you could say. Yeah, eclectic is a good word. As a writer, there are two kind of paths you can go down. One is specializing in a certain area and just kind of owning that. And uh, the other is sort of generalizing, being a generalist. And I've sort of gone the the generalist route just because there's so many different things I'm interested in. Travel, science, narrative. I, I mean, that's narrative and culture are kind of my big, big interest in how we construct the world out of stories and how that affects us in ways that we don't really understand. So a lot of my work kind of in some way or another centers around that question of of how much are you deciding your own life and how much is the, uh, the kind of culture around you deciding for you and sort of exploring that territory, you know, and, and, and the idea that, you know, one of the one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I, having felt it myself, how just how powerful culture can can be and how deep it can go. You know, I just I wanted to kind of understand what what is it exactly? Because nobody can answer this question. I swear to God, like I asked everybody, even like cultural studies professors, they'll tell you, no, there's no definition. Um, you know, because culture is either like everything we do or it's and if it's everything we do then it's kind of a meaningless term you know it's so nobody has like a a, a agreed upon full you know usable definition of what culture is and so i i kind of wanted to try to come up with just for myself and i and i feel like i what i finally came to was that when usually when we talk about culture what we're talking about is the ecosystem of stories that we feel like we're part of or that we believe in, you know, stories about how a person is supposed to get through your day, the story of like how a life is supposed to go, the story of, you know, how the world came into being, all these things that you kind of think are these chains of events that you think are true or could be true or should be true. To the extent that you share those with a group of people, you are kind of part of the same culture. And that, for me, that's a very broad, but also really powerful explanation of what of what culture is and it shows and it shows like how it can be so powerful but also can change really quickly if the stories that people believe in change all of a sudden. And it's also useful I think in a sense for for immersion purposes if you're living in a different place because part of immersing yourself in another culture is is learning the local stories and the local storylines and just figuring trying to understand how how do people here see their own life and their own possibilities and what do they think what stories do they kind of believe are true and not true and how do those different from my own i feel like it's a real useful definition of what we are usually talking about when we use the word culture well one of my favorite 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 things to do when i'm traveling is i will sit outside and i will have a cup of coffee and i will watch ordinary people walk by doing completely ordinary things 100% different than I would do them back home. That type of culture, that perspective on what is totally normal for someone else and makes sense for someone else and is just so different from how I grew up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that too. I think, I think that's totally fascinating. Yeah, and, that's, and, and it, was, it can be challenging. One of the nice things about 
for example, Nigeria is everybody speaks English or most people speak English, you know, so you can actually have some access to those stories. When you're in a place where you don't speak the language, it becomes much harder, you know, unless you live there and, and kind of put in the, the long, long time needed to to earn, the, to, to learn the language and kind of earn the trust of people. And so, I mean, you could get some of it through reading and things like that, but, but it's different than, than learning it from another person. So, so, so languages, I think, are, are, are kind of the gateway to those sorts of things or can be. Well, I find it interesting that a few minutes ago you said you were a bit more of a generalist opposed to a specialist. So the title of your book is Geography of Madness, Penis Thieves, Voodoo Death, and the Search for Meaning of the World's Strangest Syndromes. That doesn't sound like a generalist to me at all, Frank. <laughs> well, it is pretty specialized, you know, <laughs> and I do write about that a lot. I just actually did a piece related story for Undark magazine about the Chinese mystery illness, which you know, is similar to the Cuban sonic attacks, you know, which is most people who study these things think it's probably a collective stress response or a mass, so what used to be called mass hysteria, where the, the kind of belief that something is afflicting you sort of feeds into to the, the condition itself in, at some level. And so is is like part of what's driving whatever it is that's ailing you. And that's, it's very much like similar, it's a part of, it's kind of, the idea behind cultural syndromes as well, that, that, that your, your belief in the cause of an illness can become part of the etiology of the illness. And so, so yeah, that is, that is, you're right. That is a specialized thing. But I, then I'm also writing about like ultra running and I'm writing a story about light pollution and I'm writing all kinds of different stuff. It's, if I was smarter, I, I would just stick with one thing. But, you know, it's hard to make a living writing about penis stealing all the time. That, so. that makes sense. That makes sense. But definitely, I see that you have a big passion for travel and not just going to, you know, going to the Louvre in Paris or these really like normal places that are on the beaten path, like visiting Nigeria and Burkina Faso and all these other countries that we've been discussing on our talk today. Like that's really out there. And, and I think it's awesome because I love these types of places as well. But I would never call that generalist by any means. Yeah, well, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's the kind of travel I like doing, like just sitting in a hotel bar talking to random people, you know, or um, just just like getting at the bones of how people live differently and see the world differently. You know, one of the stories that I've been wanting to do for a long time is in Guyana in South America. There's these kind of weird, like dark shamans called called Kanaimas, which are they're sort of a mythical figure, but they do actually exist, and they're a little bit dangerous. I don't fully understand the whole background of them, but they like it might somehow be related to ritual sacrifice in earlier times. They'll it has something to do with balancing the forces in the world, and they'll they'll pick out a victim in the forest, and the person will be walking through the forest and hear like a specific uh, kind of whistle, and then. Um, about a year later, they will, they will, the the Kanaima will will sort of find this person in the forest and attack them and kind of as a, as a warning. And then in another year or so, they'll they'll be killed as a kind of ritual sacrifice. And so, so I just I think that's really fascinating. You need to write about that. That sounds wild. I would definitely read that. I know. Well, if you know anyone who wants to send send me down. <laughs> I've been trying to sell it for a long time. I'm just, that's, and a lot of the stories that I do end up being 
things that I like the penis dealing that I can't get somebody to, to send me on. And I just end up going by myself and then trying to sell the story later because it's too weird for people. And so that's how it works for me a lot of the time. Yeah, I think those countries in northern South America, they're pretty random. I had a conversation with a guy named James Ellsmore. I did an interview with him and he specialized in small island nations and really niche down. And then the correlations between these types of places like Guyana and things like that and the similarities with Jamaica. And he was talking about some weird, wild things about that country as well. So there's a, it's a big world. Like, oh my God. Every day I get the privilege of talking to amazing people like you who've traveled. And, and I've been traveling for 20 years straight. I haven't stopped at all. And I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of this planet and the culture and the people and, and what there is to see and do and understand. That's really the fun thing about it is just to realize how big the world is out there and how many things there are that you don't have any idea about. Yeah, definitely. Even here at home, the other day I was I was going around the lake with my daughter and we came upon a little table that said Flat Earth Research. And so I had to stop and ask some questions. <laughs> and it was, the, it was literally like, I didn't know if it was, there's a place in town called Flat Earth Brewing. And I asked if that's what it was. And he said, that's where they have their meetings. But no, they're like flat earthers. They believe the earth is flat. And that's just it. There's nothing There's nothing you can say to convince them otherwise either. So <laughs> that, That's bizarre. That's just about as weird as magical penis thieves. So. Yeah, it's, no, it's like even weirder because the majority of people don't <laughs> think that. And there's a lot of evidence to the contrary, you know. And that's just how people are. We create these kind of these these like that's a good example of of somebody kind of, like a group of people kind of creating their own narrative ecosystem that makes perfect sense if you're inside it and you you kind of believe you accept certain things and you believe certain stories and then they just talk to each other and it becomes more and more kind of self reinforcing and so that's. That's a, in miniature of what kind of culture is and, and how it works. And so, so I just love that stuff. I think it's totally fascinating. Too funny. So do you have any other plans to move overseas again to join back into the expat lifestyle? Yeah, we have talked about living abroad for a year with our daughters. Our daughters go to a Spanish immersion school, and so they're both really good in, in Spanish. And that would be one thing that's kind of on the radar is trying to figure that out. It's a little bit of a stretch. My wife is also a freelance accountant, and so we have to figure out the finances of it, which is which is tricky. And we also just built a house, and so we're we're digging out a little bit from that. But that's one of our hopes is to is to go around the world with our with our daughters for at least, I mean, ideally a year, possibly a little less, visiting some friends and stuff. But spending spending some time in a Spanish speaking country just to kind of solidify the Spanish and, and get that experience of living abroad in a different place. We've been to Mexico a couple of times with the girls and they do really well there, you know, so they've got a good start. But yeah, that's definitely something that we, we want to do. That's awesome. Spanish speaking countries are one of my favorite places to visit. I've traveled all through Central and South America and I've, I really find that the countries and the culture and the language and everything, it really is magical. So I think that you'd really enjoy a lot of those places. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. We'll find out, hopefully. So talk to me a little bit about what you're focused on. Like, where do you want to take your writing? Where do you want to take your freelance business? I have a couple of book projects that I'm working on. One is a little bit of an outgrowth of the last book, which 
the geography of madness kind of focuses on personal narratives and, and your personal beliefs about the world and how that affects you on a physiological level and other levels. The next book I want to do and I'm kind of working on is about kind of group stories and how we define ourselves as as group members and how that affects our interactions with other people, how we decide who's inside and outside, how how hard we draw that line and what the effects of that are. Because when I was in Tanzania, I went to the Rwandan war crimes tribunal and heard, you know, heard some of the stories there. And I've just always been, you know, kind of morbidly fascinated by how the genocide came about between people who were living so close to each other and who have so much in common and who have no real differences, mostly perceived differences, and how that genocide was was really engineered by the regime through, if you look at the language and the propaganda that came out, it's very similar to the fascist language in the you know early 20th century in in the way it dehumanizes people and, and and flips a switch in us that makes empathy impossible or kind of lowers empathy. And, you know, that in the face of, we have these two kind of impulses. One is to circle the wagons and bring the group identity in closer and the sort of more modern project of expanding the in-group to to include all humans, which has been sort of an ongoing thing since early 20th century or before that. And and there's always pushback against that. And so I think this question of how we create these group stories and are part of them and, and how they affect us is something that I really want to explore in, in my next book. Other than that, you know, I have I have a few big stories I want to do overseas, like the Guyana story I mentioned. And these are just kind of bits and pieces about like I want to profile a lot of teams, soccer teams in Africa and other parts of the world. But largely in Africa have like a, they'll employ like a team witch doctor who helps their team win. And I want to do a profile of one of those guys just because I feel like that's such a fascinating job. And how do you do that? Well, how do you become the team witch doctor? I have all these questions and, you know, it relates to, there's a lot of like rituals that we have with sports and, and belief and luck and all these things that I kind of want to explore through that. Those are a few of the projects that I have on my radar ahead of me. I'm also working on a collection of poems and uh, an anthology of poems and and stories about about Minneapolis that'll come out next year. So that's a little closer to home. But I just love the juxtaposition. African shamans, you know, to poetry in the United States. It's like, it's so different, but it's, I I can kind of see how this all works. I'm trying to understand how your mind works. It's very cool. Well, if you can understand it, let me know, because I'm still trying to figure it out. But I mean, we, you know, we. What part of the story of Minneapolis is like every every city in the world is that it's become more diverse and a lot and more of the stories are from abroad. You know, we have two Somali poets who have poems in the anthology. We have a Hmong writer, you know, a Vietnamese American writer, all kinds of different backgrounds and narratives that are feeding into the local literary culture here, you know, which has changed a lot. It's not just like Garrison Keillor and, and Oli Rolvog and, and, you know, the, the Northern European immigrants anymore. It's much more, it's much more of a global city in a lot of ways. Well, I'm sure you will put your own twist on it and it will turn out fantastic. Frank, 
Super interesting conversation today. I think it's awesome. Tell me the name of your book again and where people can pick it up. And if my listeners want to reach out to you, where can we send them? I have a website just at frankburris.com. And I'm sort of off and on social media just based on my workload. I'm not the best at that. But I, my, the title of my book is uh, Geography of Madness, Penis Thieves, Voodoo Death, and the Search for the Meaning of the World's Strangest Syndromes. And you can get it pretty much anywhere. It's on Amazon. It's on Indie Next. You can get it through Amazon UK. And a Spanish version just came out and a Turkish version just came out. And I don't know if there's others coming out, but those are a little closer to Abu Dhabi than here, but basically you should be able to get it anywhere, distribution. You can get a Kindle version of it as well. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Frank. Really awesome conversation. And I'll talk to you soon, okay? All right. Thanks so much for having me. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. I want to remind you that if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you're going to be able to download our special report. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It has been a project of mine I have been working on for maybe four years now, and I constantly update this with the newest and best strategies. Now, it's really different than a lot of other special reports or books out there because this one is really short, and it is short on purpose. What I want to do is kind of highlight to you the best of the best strategies that are out there in the world and then where you can go for additional information or how you can get involved in these things. So instead of writing a 500-page special report on this, which probably chances are no one is going to read it, this is really highly condensed information. I've actually put it in an infographic. It's an infographic special report. It has helped thousands upon thousands of people really get a grasp of being an expat and what type of things are out there to protect your assets, professionals that you should be working with, investments, real estate, these types of things. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can pick it up at expatmoneyshow.com. You'll see it. It's on the very first page at the very top. All you need to do is put in your name and email address. You're going to get a chance to actually join my private email list, EMS Pulse. And there's just so much great things that are shared on there. It's completely free. There's no funnel. There's no trick to this. There's no credit card needed, anything like that. It's just a good resource for you, my listener, who I love and adore. And I want to do right by you guys. So go to expatmoneyshow.com, pick this up. Let me know what you think. I'll talk to you soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. 
From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.